some years ago, long before we had quarantine and restrictions on international travel, I had the chance to visit the Great Barrier Reef when I was on holiday in Australia. And even though I'm quite a weak swimmer, I have to confess, on that occasion, there was no way I was going to pass up the opportunity uh, of going snorkeling just off one of those many uninhabited islands and seeing all of that incredible marine life in the coral reef. Now, we've been warned, of course, by the instructors not to go too far out into the sea. But as I was swimming and looking down at all the corals and the fish and the amazing array of colours, I didn't realise just how far and how fast the ocean current was taking me away from the beach. By the time I looked up, I was on my own. I was at least twice the distance from the beach that I thought I was. And as I was trying to swim back, I immediately realised the current was much stronger than I'd been prepared for. And being such a weak swimmer, I began panicking. I seriously thought I would never make it back. Well, needless to say, I did eventually make it back. But that episode does, I think, illustrate how we might sometimes feel as we navigate the world of our workplaces and our contemporary culture in general. You see, most Christian believers, I would assume, recognise the value of being involved and integrated in society. We want to take those good opportunities for advancing the gospel in different ways. But more often than not, as we try to live and work in a godly way, we then find ourselves swimming against a much stronger current than we've been prepared for. How do we make sure that we sense the danger early enough and avoid drifting too far? Well, those are some of the issues that our Bible passage today very much addresses. Turn with me back to Daniel chapter 1. What we have here is a story of a small group of young Jewish refugees who are suddenly thrown into a foreign, hostile culture and forced into working for the brutal regime which had destroyed their home city. Uh, The people of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the only surviving remnant of what had been the nation of Israel after it split in two. Well, they'd been warned repeatedly by God's prophets that unless they returned to their covenant relationship with the Lord, unless they turned away from their false gods, unless they repented of their gross injustices, then judgment by exile would surely come their way. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah specifically prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar, king of this rising Babylonian empire, would be God's chosen instrument for bringing about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we join the story in verses 1 to 2 with the first wave of Judean exiles being carried off to Babylon, along with plunder from the temple. Among them are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, probably only teenagers at this stage and drawn from the Judean nobility, where previously they would have enjoyed a privileged upbringing and may well have been training to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. Instead, in verses 3 to 5, if you look down again, they're forcibly thrust into what appears to be some kind of Babylonian civil service fast stream program, where Nebuchadnezzar took the most talented young graduates from across the empire, trained them up for three years to serve in his elite group of special advisors. How would they get on? Would they survive? And if they did, would they remain faithful? Well, let's examine two key aspects of their story. 
Now, before we get to the bit that everyone remembers from the children's stories in Sunday school, where Daniel and his friends bravely stand firm, defy the king. Before we get to that, the first main point to note is that Daniel and his friends didn't just withdraw into their own Jewish social bubble or support bubble or whatever they're called now. Perhaps they had no choice, but it's worth seeing just how far they were willing to integrate into their new Babylonian surroundings in at least three remarkable ways. First, they accepted new pagan names, verse 7. Previously, they each had Jewish names that honoured the Lord, Yahweh. But now in a culture where names were intrinsically linked with identity, they accepted new names that referred to Babylonian gods. Second, they accepted a pagan education. We read at the end of verse 4 that the core syllabus in this graduate programme was the language and literature of the Babylonians, uh, which literally uh, can be translated as Chaldeans, the ruling tribe in Babylon, who were particularly known for their practice of divination and dark spiritual practices. Now, before homeschooling became more or less ubiquitous during the lockdown, some Christian families felt it was best to shield their children, not from any virus, but from the negative influences of secular schools by educating them at home. And of course, every Christian parent must exercise their wisdom to decide what's best for their children. But for Daniel and his friends, at least, they had no issue with studying at the finest pagan institution of their day. In fact, as we'll see later on in the passage, their in-depth understanding of the Babylonian literature and ways of thinking put them in unparalleled positions of opportunity to command an audience for God's voice in the public square. So they accepted pagan names, they accepted a pagan education, and thirdly, they accepted careers in a pagan administration. They were willing to serve the king who at that very time was waging war against their own country. And as we see in later chapters of Daniel, it wasn't just a case of doing the minimum to earn a living, having been press-ganged into the king's service. Rather, time and again, they strive for excellence and work with integrity for the flourishing of the people of Babylon and beyond. Perhaps they were inspired by Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. We read in Jeremiah chapter 29 an exhortation to them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, the second main point to note is that notwithstanding all of this remarkable assimilation into the polytheistic pagan culture around them, we see in verse 8 that Daniel and his friends do take a stand on the matter of food and wine from the king's table. This is where they draw the line and say no to cultural integration. This is where they recognise the danger of drifting too far. This is where they need to turn back and start swimming against the strong cultural currents which could otherwise take them further and further away from God. But why this issue? I mean, it seems rather more trivial, wouldn't you say, than wholesale identity change or being immersed in pagan ways of learning and thinking and working. And also, it would have been so easy just to go along with what everyone else was doing and enjoy the perks of the job. Well, some commentators have pointed out that the word defile here in verse 8 has connotations of religious defilement. 
So maybe they refused the king's food and wine because it went against the Jewish food laws or perhaps because it had been offered to idols. But these explanations aren't entirely convincing because firstly, there was no prohibition on wine in the Mosaic law. And we actually learn in chapter 10 that Daniel did later eat meat in Babylon. There are also texts in Hosea and Amos, which kind of suggest it's basically impossible to keep kosher in a foreign land in any case. And if they were concerned about the food having been offered to idols, then that would have applied to the vegetables as well, which is the only bit they do eat, if you see in verses 12 to 16. Now, whilst it's not clear what the exact reason was for refusing the king's food and wine, and therefore we do need to avoid being too dogmatic about this point, the most plausible reason which I think best explains this is that taking the choice food and wine from the king's table could have symbolised covenant loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. We know that in the culture of the ancient Near East, as well as from elsewhere in the Bible, having a meal or sharing food from someone's table was often a symbolic act involved in making a solemn covenant. For Daniel and his friends, they were willing to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's government, but they weren't at this early stage in their training willing to be totally dependent and obedient to him. They refused to swear ultimate allegiance to this pagan king because that kind of covenant loyalty was reserved for the Lord God alone. And this perhaps explains why the chief official in verse 10 was so afraid of Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to such a potential rejection of his lordship over these young Jews. And what follows at the conclusion of the story is that God honours their faithfulness by causing the officials to show favour and compassion to Daniel and his friends. He gives them great success in their profession exams and they qualify with distinction into the king's service. So what can we learn from this passage? Well, it's important to note that Daniel chapter one was never intended to establish a normative or prescriptive pattern for all believers at all times. So we do need to exercise some caution when applying this passage to ourselves, especially given the vast historical and redemptive distance between the Judean exiles of the 6th century BC and the international body of Christ in the 21st century AD. We certainly want to go beyond the simplistic or moralistic applications that some of us may have come across as children to be brave like Daniel, stand up for God and he'll make sure you ace your exams. Still less do we want to adopt any overly literalistic applications like believing that a vegan diet will always yield better nutritional results. Now, veganism may well have merits, but that's just not the focus of this passage. Rather, our point of connection with the Jewish protagonists in this story is that we too, as Christian believers, are a chosen people, a holy nation, living scattered as foreigners and exiles in this pagan world, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 12. And we're likewise looking forward to entering our true homeland because our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, verse 20. And of course, Jesus himself in John chapter 17, as he prays for his disciples, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Again, let's just focus on two main applications 
that we can properly draw out from these principles. The first and most obvious application is that we as disciples of the Lord Jesus are, as he put it himself, in the world, but not of the world. We're called to reach out to an unbelieving world with the gospel message. We're called to make disciples of all nations. We're called to be salt and light in our families, our neighbourhoods, and yes, our workplaces. Whilst Daniel and his friends might have been compelled to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom by brute force, we are impelled to serve God's kingdom by the grace he has shown us in the gospel. And just like Daniel and his friends, we shouldn't be afraid to take up positions of responsibility or leadership in so-called secular organisations or get really stuck in and work in a close-knit team with others who aren't Christian believers. We shouldn't just do the minimum needed to earn a living and then retreat back into our own Christian bubble. Rather, we should make best use of the gifts and opportunities that God gives us to seek the peace and prosperity and flourishing of the cities and workplaces that we've been sent to as ambassadors of Christ. And yet, whilst doing all of that, we also need to pray for wisdom and discernment about where we might need to draw a line and take a stand. Where are we in danger of assimilating or compromising too much, drifting too far and being swept away by the unseen social currents of our day? No, it doesn't need to be some grand heroic gesture in front of everyone in the office or the classroom or the hospital. Daniel and his friends took their stand more or less in secret. In fact, the passage emphasises that no one could tell that they hadn't been eating the king's food. They looked healthier and better nourished than their peers, it says in verse 15. And likewise for us, being distinctive could consist of the small, unseen, everyday things. Matters of integrity, like not covering up mistakes with lies, not taking credit for someone else's work, not blaming others to deflect criticism. And finally, we should be vigilant against being sucked into any kind of ultimate allegiance towards things that might give us meaning and identity, whether that's our companies, our careers, or even an honourable cause like healthcare or education or government. We mustn't allow any kind of loyalty or dedication to those things if it comes at the expense of covenant loyalty to our God. Secondly, and more briefly, notice how the narrator of this story sets things in the right perspective. That's God's perspective. There's a distinctive phrase which is repeated three times in the passage for added emphasis, though it's slightly obscured by our NIV translation. In verse two, we're told that the Lord delivered the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In verse nine, God caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. And in verse 17, God gave knowledge and understanding to our young protagonists. Now, in each case, it's actually the same word, God gave. It was God, not Nebuchadnezzar, who was really in charge. It was God, the true king, who orchestrated all these events in accordance with his divine providence. And so in the midst of international and personal crisis, Daniel and his friends trusted in their heavenly king whilst serving their earthly king. And likewise for us, whether we're in positions of power and success or weakness and subjugation, 
we are all still answerable to the King of Kings. And whoever are those earthly kings that we happen to be serving right now, we all have the greatest privilege of being in the true king's service. He is ultimately in control and should command our ultimate trust.